Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. I'm a little disappointed, to be clear. And, uh, and I think that that's just a natural reality. Well, that didn't turn out exactly how I wanted it to. It sure didn't. And as Republicans like Glenn Youngkin and Daniel Cameron lick their wounds, Democrats celebrate big victories in yesterday's elections, with voters sending a clear message to Republicans. Abortion is still a big problem for you. Also tonight, Ivanka Trump found a babysitter, allowing her to take the stand today in the New York civil fraud trial, bringing with her a three-word phrase that got a lot of use. I don't recall. Plus, breaking news tonight, the Pentagon says the U.S. has carried out another airstrike in Syria following attacks against U.S. personnel in that region. But we begin tonight with a message for Republicans. And I don't know who needs to hear this in the Republican Party since y'all keep trying even though voters keep telling you over and over and over again. But abortion is a big problem for you. That should be the message Republicans take away from Tuesday's big night for Democrats, as voters sent a resounding message that no matter what Sam Alito and his fellow commanders of Gilead want, stripping half the population of control of their own bodies and reproductive decisions is a massive loser for Republicans. And when voters get the chance to vote to protect that basic right, they're going to do it whether their state is blue, purple, or red. Abortion rights were the driving issue in elections up and down Tuesday's ballots. Let's start with Virginia. Voters there rejected Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's genius plan to prime America for a, quote, reasonable national abortion ban. Democrats blocked the Republican takeover of state government, retaining control of the state Senate, and flipping control of the Virginia House of Delegates. That will put an end to Glenn Youngkin's plans for a 15-week abortion ban in Virginia and to Republican big-money donors' fever dream that the vest-wearing, book-banning finance guy will rescue the party, beat Trump in a late primary, and glide into the White House having cracked the abortion ban cheat code. It was a hard no for Virginia last night. Meanwhile, in deep red Kentucky, abortion was also at the forefront. Incumbent Democratic Governor Andy Bashir mollywhopped State Attorney General Daniel Cameron, defeating him by five points in a state Donald Trump won by 26 points in 2020. Cameron is best known outside of Kentucky for refusing to seek justice against the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor. Kentucky voters rejected him in part because of his support for Kentucky's sweeping abortion ban. But Governor Bashir also bucked the national media narrative that the Democratic Party is in trouble following some disappointing polling numbers for President Biden this week. Kentucky voters also rejected Republican efforts to weaponize the culture wars, rejecting anti-transgender attacks on Governor Bashir, who'd voted, who'd vetoed a pair of anti-trans bills in the state. Those attacks also failed in Virginia, where voters also made history electing the state's first transgender state senator, Danica Rome, one of several historic firsts last night. Sherelle Parker was elected the first woman mayor of Philadelphia. Rhode Island elected its first black U.S. representative, Gabe Amo. And in New York City, Dr. Yusuf Salam, one of the exonerated five, won a seat on the city council. 
And while it was almost all good news for Democrats in Mississippi, Democrat Brandon Presley, a distant cousin of Elvis, narrowly lost to incumbent Governor Tate Reeves amid voting problems. Polling places ran out of ballots in, surprise, surprise, largely black communities in Mississippi's largest county encompassing the capital, Jackson. You know, where the water stopped working properly earlier this year and where the nearly all white state leadership seized control of the police. Perhaps the most resounding victory for abortion rights came in another red state, Ohio, which had a direct abortion question on the ballot. Voters there overwhelmingly said yes to enshrining abortion rights in their state constitution by 14 points. And yet, despite that raft of evidence that abortion is a losing issue for Republicans everywhere, some of them still seem to be not getting the message. Daniel Cameron was a rising star in the Republican Party until he decided to throw his lot in with Donald Trump. I mean, let's face it, Donald Trump is political and electoral poison down ballot. Democrats are trying to scare women into thinking Republicans don't want abortion legal under any circumstances. What a uh, an epic failure by Governor Youngkin. This is a huge loss. You put very sexy things like abortion and marijuana on the ballot and a lot of young people come out and vote. it, it, it was a it was a secret sauce for disaster in Ohio. Thank goodness that most of the states in this country don't allow you to put everything on the ballot because right. pure democracies are not the way to run a country. So, huh. We have a very distinguished panel to discuss all of this. Former Senator Claire McCaskill, David Plouffe, former Obama campaign manager, Charlie Sykes, editor at large of The Bulwark, and Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University. Claire, I'm going to start with you with this, get through some of these polls. I mean, very sexy things like abortion. Yeah. Sexy. You know, and, and, and this is from a guy who has been a radical on this subject, Santorum, forever. Yeah. And he what he's basically saying is we do not agree with the majority of America. So therefore, we must keep the majority of America from speaking yeah. on this topic. Yeah. Uh, Democracy is a bad thing per Santorum. With, with the with Roe being overturned, this discussion changed from a theoretical to real for women in America. Yeah. And anybody I read this morning in the Wall Street Journal, some political genius out of Virginia, Republican consultant said, well, this won't be that big of issue next year. <laughs> I got a news flash for you. This issue is not going away. Yeah. The women of this country and many of the men do not like their freedom being taken away, do not want the government in this very personal, delicate, difficult situation. They don't want the government there. And they're going to vote that way, and it's going to be a big winner for the Democrats next year. And the thing is, you know, David Plouffe, it's not just a big winner among Democrats. It's a big winner in Republican states, in red states, in Ohio. Let me just read you some of these uh, exit polls in Ohio. NBC exit polls, Ohio women 18 to 44, 74% voted to enshrine abortion in the Constitution. Ohio women over 45. It's less, but it's still 52 percent. No, 48. Go down uh, by education. These are white voters in Ohio. I I think only about 7 percent of the electorate was black. So white voters were the vast majority. White women college graduates, 63 percent. Yes. White women non-college graduates were the ones who were 50-50. White male college graduates, 57 percent. Yes. It's really only white men without college degrees that were in the 40s. Everyone else was in the 50s or above. Last thing I will read to you from Ohio voters. How do you feel about the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade? The largest percentage in the pluralities was angry. 38 percent, 22 percent dissatisfied. David Plouffe, I don't know how much more data Republicans would need to understand that 
the American people in the majority do not want women's bodies controlled by the state. I don't understand what else to tell them. Uh, do you? Well, and I just want to underscore what Claire said. I think uh, Republicans will try and run away from this issue, but there's no running away from it. The American people believe this is one of the most important issues. They're proven they're going to vote on it. And if Trump is on the top of the ticket, Roe v. Wade was overturned largely because the Supreme Court justices that he nominated, you know, he owns this. He's kind of the godfather of uh, the decision uh, that overturned Roe v. Wade. I will say this, obviously a great result for Democrats. We should celebrate that. We have a lot of history now going back to 22 that this issue drives. But like in Ohio, that was an election just on abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think Democrats now, sadly, wasn't too long ago that we were competitive in Ohio and hopefully Sherrod Brown can hold him to his seat. Um, and I think he will. But, you know, we lose a lot of races in that state by 10 points. So uh, the nerd in me thinks, as you look at these races, whether it's Kentucky, which was a straight up candidate race, Ohio, the Virginia legislative races, there's a whole bunch of voters there that voted the Democratic side or progressive side that currently aren't saying they're going to vote for Joe Biden or the Democratic candidates. That is a data and research gold mine, you know, to know who they are and, and what you can do to close the sale. The other thing I'd say is, um, you know, Democrats, and this wasn't always the case for most of my career, quite frankly, but do perform really well now in lower turnout elections. Mm -hmm. We know if Trump's top of the ticket, his turnout's coming next year. And so that's going to be the challenge is we have to not just do what we need to do with swing voters. And I think abortion can play a big role in that. But we also have to do what we need to do on turnout. And I think that's the biggest, biggest concern. We've got plenty of time to address it. Uh, but but that's if, if things don't go like we'd like to next November, I think that's going to be the factor. And, and well, let me let me go to you on this, uh, Jason, because that's a good point. One of the things that Democrats do have a can't have a, an advantage over Republicans uh, is candidate quality. <laughs> let's just let's just I mean, Andy Bashir is he comes from a one of the you know, it's probably the gold ticket name surname to have in the state of Kentucky. His father was governor, very popular. And the other piece of it is it proves that the things you deliver actually matter. Maintaining Obamacare, which they call Connect, which they very wisely right. didn't call Obamacare. And, and it's popular. And when his predecessor tried to get rid of it, that is how Andy Bashir beat him the first time. That's how he became governor, was beating the guy who tried to take away Kentuckians' health care. So candidate quality matters, right? But talk about that from the Bashir angle, but also in the Youngkin angle for, for Republicans. They saw him as their high quality candidate. But he made that election about abortion. He chose to do that. He said, if I get if I get the right. majority in these two houses, I'm banning abortion. There, there's so much to unpack here, Joy. Here's the thing. First off, when it comes to Andy Bashir, he did a good job. He is the second most popular governor in America, besides the governor of Hawaii. Like, he was a very, very popular guy. But this is an extremely red state. So it's not just that he did a good job, but he was running against Daniel Cameron, who arguably is the most loathed candidate amongst <laughs> black people since the first time Donald Trump ran. I cannot stress this enough. I talked to plenty of people in Kentucky. That man has the blood of Breonna Taylor's hands. He, he, her blood is on his hands. And people remember that. And black voters remember that. And Daniel Cameron couldn't run away from that. So Andy Bashir, by focusing on, hey, I've done a good job, and running against someone who is seen as the lowest of the low by most black voters was a good combination. As far as Glenn Youngkin goes, you hear that sound? You hear that beeping? 
That, that's the truck. That's the bandwagon for Glenn Youngkin backing up away from Iowa and every other place. Okay, Glenn Youngkin was looking too far ahead. He was like, I'm going to win these elections. I'm going to be the reverse DeRay. I'm the guy in the vest. I play basketball <laughs> in my front yard. I'm your cul-de-sac South Park Republican, and I'm going to be able to slide into the presidency. First off, no one is going to move ahead in the Republican Party until Donald Trump is gone. And second, you can't keep hiding what stinks. You can throw on all the cologne you can want. You can put on all the nice candidates you want. Abortion is a dead issue for Republicans. People don't like it. And Young can learn that lesson. But the rest of the party isn't going to figure it out. Yeah. Let me put up the map um, to that very point. Uh, Charlie, here it is. The yeah. state's affirming abortion access. And the, the, the pluses on there are how much it won by. Big. How much it won by. In Vermont, it won by 54 points. In Kansas, it won by 18. Red Kansas. In Ohio, Kansas. by 14. Montana, six. It doesn't matter, Charlie, where you do it. It's always going to win like marijuana legalization and raising the minimum wage. Also very popular things that Democrats could just put on the ballot and help themselves out. Well, what we saw again today, um, yesterday, uh, was the Republicans have two separate problems. And, and, and both of them, I think, are, you know, explain how alarmed they are by the results. I mean, one of them, of course, is the abortion issue, which is not going away. They thought they could finesse it in Virginia. Um, I mean, this was their, you said the cheat sheet. They, they thought they had cracked the code. What if they went with a 15-week ban, right? Because that polls better. The fact that that failed so spectacularly means they have to go back to the, the, the drawing board. And I don't know that they have a plan be uh, beyond that. So that's one problem. The other problem is the MAGA problem, is the Donald Trump. Donald Trump was not on the ballot, but he won Kentucky by 26 points and he went all in for Daniel Cameron. And, um, you know, the, the, the MAGA brand has not has been a, um, you know, has, has, has been a weight on Republicans for years. And it was very dramatically a weight yesterday because Democrats hung the extreme MAGA label on on the Republican candidate in a very, very red state. And and it was successful. So if you're a Republican, you're sitting back going, oh, my, <laughs> despite all of the promising polls, the abortion issue is not going away. And 2024 is going to be all about MAGA and Donald Trump. I know there are a lot of Republicans that think that they can finesse the abortion issue. But yesterday was kind of a reality check. And by the way, I also agree with all of David's caveats about the the limited predictive value of this election and, and how 2024 is different. But there's a reason why uh, Fox News hosts and Republican uh, consultants are uh, kind of depressed today. <laughs> well, I mean, Claire, a lot of people were wetting the bed a bit, moistening the bed, a bit, you know, the Democrats who just think Democrats do something about that New York Times Siena poll. But Biden wasn't on the ballot. This wasn't an election about Biden. It was an, in large part an election about Republicans or an election about incumbents in the case of Andy Bashir. Even in Mississippi, what I took out of that race, the Presley, how close he is that Mississippi is not an unwinnable state if you have a good candidate. And if you didn't have voting problems, you can put a lot of sort of factors in. To me, Democrat, the one of the reasons Biden likely won't walk away from this race is that I think he, the campaign is probably confident that as long as abortion is out there and as long as Republicans are extreme on that and even on things like like LGBTQ issues. You had Virginia elect a first trans state senator. The culture war doesn't work for Republicans. Yeah, the, the polling shows that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are not popular. Okay, fine. Move on. This is about who is better for America. This isn't about who you like the most. This is a binary choice. This is a contrast. And what yesterday did is it showed us how to do the contrast. And by the way, 
we've got other players that are going to help here. I mean, they just put, by a unanimous vote, the Republican Party, Mike Johnson into the speaker's <laughs> chair. The stuff he has said, the things he believes in, he is the poster child of the most extreme elements of the MAGA movement. Yeah. And scary extreme. Yeah. So they cannot run away from how far they have taken this. And here's what the bottom line is. People don't want government telling them what to do. Boom. They don't want to tell them what to read. Yep. They don't want to ha- tell them how to raise their children That's right. in terms of the trans issues. And they don't want to read. They don't want to be told what to read. They don't want to. And, and this right. is where we have the ability to really talk about freedom with some real meaning and emotion. And you know what gets people out to vote? Emotion. Yeah. And that's what we've got to really focus on. Like David said, it's not going to be enough that they've got these extreme positions if we don't motivate our voters to understand what's at stake. All right, we're going to use that as a tease uh, because the hostage situation begins right now. My distinguished panel is staying right here because there is still a slew of surprising outcomes and historic moments to talk about when the readout returns after this short break. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. I did something that nobody thought was possible. I got rid of Roe v. Wade. The fact that I was able to terminate Roe v. Wade after 50 years of trying, they worked for 50 years. I've never seen anything like it. They worked, and I was even, I was so honored to have done it. We are in a very good negotiating position right now, only because of what I was able to do. And there you have it, Donald Trump bragging about getting rid of Roe v. Wade. Tell me, Republicans, how's that been working out for you? Back with me, Claire McCaskill, David Pluff, Charlie Sykes, Jason Johnson. Uh, Charlie, let me come to you on this first, because for 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 Donald Trump, that line helps him with evangelicals. The problem is he already has white evangelicals with everyone else. It just reminds them that, you know what, maybe I ought to pay attention to I vote for for Senate because they confirm Supreme Court justices. Your thoughts? No, it's going to be interesting to see how he handles this. I mean, after the midterms, uh, Donald Trump actually uh, took a shot at the pro-life movement, said that one of the reasons why Republicans lost was not because of him. It was because they had taken two extreme positions. So he's going to try to say, no, I am the more moderate um, voice here. I am going to only I will be able to negotiate some sort of a compromise. But uh, it's going to be very, very difficult because, as you mentioned right before the break, uh, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, um, has put his name on um, I think the purest kind of restrictions on abortion rights, uh, there's a long record. There's a constituency that will have bottom lines. You can't walk away from this. Now, he's going to try to distance himself from, say, what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida with a six-week ban. But 
Um, it seems inevitable that Donald Trump will be proposing a national ban. And the word ban is the key to all of this. Having the federal government come in and ban abortion rights in every single state, whatever number you put on it, whether it is six weeks or 15 weeks, whether there's exemptions for rape or incest, that's going to be the huge issue. And I don't see how Donald Trump can walk away from that because, well, you just played, uh, you you just brought the receipts. He's taken credit for this particular moment. Yeah. And, and he frankly deserves a lot of it. Yeah. No, I mean, and David Fluff, I mean, it, it is a reminder that, you know, he handed over the Supreme Court choices to Leonard Leo, who packed the court with the Samuel Alito crowd that wants to get rid of abortion. That type of person, three of the, you know, obviously Alito wasn't Trump's uh, pick. But I mean, it seems to me that Democrats are going to run directly on abortion and run into that issue. And that is what the Biden campaign is going to count on. And they're not going to let up. So I'm assuming this is the playbook, including for Senate races. No. Well, sure. I mean, sometimes we can overcomplicate politics. Abortion was legal in this country before Donald Trump was president. He became president. Roe v. Wade was overturned. And it's his signature accomplishment. He was just bragging in that clip you showed about he terminated Roe v. Wade. Hard to run away from that. And obviously, in today's world, you can feed that to whoever, whichever voter you want, whichever battleground state as many times as you want to. So uh, I I agree with Charlie that he'll try and somehow moderate. But again, uh, there is one person above all responsible for where we are in this country as relates to women's reproductive rights, and it's Donald J. Trump. Yeah. So the other thing about Trump and abortion is, you know, we don't know where the economy is going to be. And that is a huge question. And again, I, I would just remind everybody, sometimes, you know, Democrats, we can focus on statistics and voters can't be told how they view the economy. They right. tell us how they view right. the economy. OK, so if in their view, it is getting better. Right? Joe Biden's got a lot of accomplishments. He should talk about those. I think he should do it in a contrast frame with Trump, because ultimately it's really hard for incumbents in today's politics to win a referendum. He has to turn this into a searing, simple choice. But so he's got to do what he can to make sure Trump doesn't have any advantage on the economy. But you've got abortion. You've got the Trump circus. You've got these other big things that drive vote. And this is the important thing in politics when you're managing campaigns. What is driving vote? (laughs) And this drives vote. And I think it drives both swing voters behavior. It also can drive turnout for younger voters. So, yeah, this is going to be front and center. uh, And I think that Trump, it's going to be impossible for Trump to run away from this because, again, he is the author in many ways of where we are today. And, you know, on the economy piece, uh, Jason, I and I was saying to Claire in the break that my working theory is that the, the the only people who actually really do vote based on the economy, no matter what people tell pollsters, are younger people, people who have less money and yeah. who really sort of live the economy in a different way. Older voters generally either have more money in the bank or they're you know they're they're more secure. They'll say they're voting on the economy, but it's younger people who do. And let's talk specifically about younger African Americans. This is a big question people are having: is whether Black voters are going to come out for Biden. There's a lot of issues that they're not happy with him about right now. And the stimmy that Donald Trump as president put his big magic marker on for a lot of lower income voters who got the physical check with the signature on it. And for a lot of black voters that represented the government actually doing something directly for them. You cannot talk people down from that. And they think the economy is bad. So how much do you think something like abortion motivates against something like the economy, wherein younger voters actually do not think the economy is good, no matter what the stats say? 
Here's the thing, Joy. You know, all young black voters aren't created equal, right? Like, right. I'm a college professor at Morgan State. I tell my students all the time, you're not representative of most people. You're in college, right? <laughs> like, there's, there's a difference between being 20 years old and working at Chick-fil-A and 20 years old and working on your master's degree, right? Yeah. So that's really going to be the issue. I say this all the time. This has always been my theory about the economy, Joy. Wait until the first polls after Thanksgiving. Mm. Thanksgiving is the greatest polling time forever. It's when everybody gets together and you find out, hey, does Dre feel like he's going to get a, a, you know, a, a new job when he graduates? Which family members can show up? Is Thanksgiving smaller this year because we can't afford turkey because of inflation? How people feel about the economy is based on how it's affecting those in their family. And everyone will make an assessment of that in about two weeks. If people are feeling slightly better about the economy after Thanksgiving, that is a good sign for Joe. Biden next year. If people leave Thanksgiving and say, hey, I only have one slice of cranberry because it costs too much at Kroger, <laughs> Democrats are in trouble and they're going to have to come up with something else other than an abortion. Uh, I, amen to that. Uh, Claire, let me get the final one to you here because there are other people running. Um, it's kind of hard to remember that because they don't seem really relevant yeah. or important. Um, but there are a bunch of people who say they're running for president. I personally think they're running for podcasts. They want to compete with Ben Shapiro, not with Donald <laughs> Trump. But uh, they're running Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Tim Scott. What is the purpose of them at this point? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think they know. I mean, you know, you cannot beat somebody by ignoring them. Right. And they have, all of them have ignored Trump this entire time. And if they don't say his name tonight, if Chris Christie is the only one that calls him out, they are so far behind him. And if they all would have in the beginning said, we're going to reject this guy who's been indicted 91 times in four jurisdictions and who is trying to undermine the very basic tenet of our country in terms of our democracy, then we'd be in a different place. But you don't beat somebody by ignoring them. And my prediction is they're going to have a smaller audience tonight mm. and none of them are going to move significantly after the debate and none of them will say the word Trump with maybe the exception of Chris Christie. Maybe Nikki Haley. Well, no, she won't say it either. I don't think so. No, she won't. They should just do a show of hands. Who here likes Trump? Oh, all of you? Okay. Thank you for joining us. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see you on the next debate. Claire McGaskill, David Fluff. Y'all like him? You sure? Chris Chris, you like him a little bit too? Okay. Amen. It's over. David Fluff, Charlie Sykes, Jason Johnson, Claire McCaskill. Thank you all very much. Up next, Ivanka Trump takes the stand while apparently suffering from a mild case of amnesia, specifically about her involvement in her dad's financial scams. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. <clears throat> 
I do not recall. Sorry. That was the most repeated response from Ivanka Trump today during her testimony in the $250 million civil fraud trial against her father and the family business. Ivanka was the latest witness for the prosecution and the fourth Trump family member to testify following Donald Trump on Monday and Don Jr. and Eric last week. But unlike all of them, she was the first Trump to not also sit at the defense table before taking the stand. While she's not a defendant in the case, she was an executive vice president in the Trump organization before she left the company in 2017 to serve as a senior White House aide. Prosecutors say it was in her role as company VP that Ivanka was involved in securing and negotiating loans to obtain favorable terms based on the fraudulent financial statements for both the Doral Golf Club in Florida and the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., Joining me now is NBC's Adam Reese, who was in court today and has been in court every day enjoying this trial. Um, let's talk about the interactions, because the interactions have sort of been one of the fascinating things. You were there for the yelling, Donald Trump yelling at the judge. G- give us a little bit of a take on his sort of tone and tenor then versus today. Well, it's funny you say that because she took a page out of the Trump family playbook, just like Donald Trump, the brothers. She denied, denied, denied. She was very comfortable. She was composed, calm, cool, collected. She didn't yell at the judge. She didn't yell. She was very cool, but she didn't remember anything. She must have said, I don't recall some two dozen times, maybe even 30 times. And prosecutors said she knew this business. She knew the valuations top to bottom, the most important things. But she didn't remember any of it. You know, she said there are plenty of valuations that I deal with. It's a big company. But the most important, the critical element to this case is the statements of financial condition, which she was very involved in. She didn't recall emails that she had sent, documents that she had signed. So but when it when it came time to cross, uh, it was a whole different story. She suddenly found her voice. She was able to expound on the old post office. It was decrepit. There was a food court in the basement. We turned it around into a world-class hotel. Uh, The Doral Golf Course, she talked about how her and her father um, would reminisce. It was the first spa in the world. Um, So she found her voice. But I must say, Joy, uh, for the most part, she really developed a case of amnesia. Is it surprising to you, based on the way that the prosecution is presenting her knowledge of the business, that she's not a part of the case? She is a part of the case. Or that she's not on trial. Yeah. She's not a defendant. She's just a witness. And she had to be dragged here. Yeah. She fought tooth and nail. She said, I have to take my kids to school in Miami. (laughs) Um, But she didn't win. She was back. We thought she might even uh, continue into tomorrow. Prosecution ended. There was a short cross. and, And she's gone. And she didn't sit at the defense table. That's odd. She didn't um, because she's not a defendant. So she was able to avoid that camera spray where they have to smile and mug for the cameras before they take the stand. Was there any sort of interaction between the sort of looking any eye contact? Like what, What was the interaction between her and the defense table? She actually, as I saw, Eric did this a lot. Um, She glanced over. She wanted to get support, maybe a little bit of recognition, even though those aren't her attorneys. Yeah. She had her own attorney sitting in the back of the gallery, but she was still looking over. And when she left during the lunch break, she sort of slowed down and had a little chat with Chris Kai's defense attorney. Yeah. Um, I think she was coordinating with them as well, for sure. Now, initially, she did have the same attorneys. But then once she was taken off the case, she got her own attorney. So now she's sort of in a separate box. She clearly wants to separate herself from this case. 
Um, you know, there is some talk she's separated herself from parts of the family. She has had some reconciliation with her father. They they talk, but she's in Miami and she wants to get as far away from this as oh, possible. Oh, she wants to be with the Kardashians. She wants back her social credibility, which I don't think that uh, is going to float, but that's what she wants to do. Uh, are any of these uh, folks expected to come back? Is she expected to come back? Are the sons expected to come back on stand? She, she won't come back. And that's why they wanted to make sure they finished with her. There's a good chance both of the boys boys will come back, Eric and Don Jr. Yeah. There's a possibility Donald Trump himself could come back. Mm. Uh, there's some suggestion he felt he did a good job on Monday. Yelling at the judge? And he may want to, you know, have another shot at it. Uh, they have 127 witnesses. They're going to go till December 15th. Tomorrow, yeah. they're going to argue for a mistrial. So mm. this case is not over. Adam Reese, uh, and he's in there so that we don't have to be. So thank you very much for what you are doing and for the great reporting. Thank you, Adam. Uh, up next, breaking news from the Pentagon tonight as the U.S. launches as the U.S. launches an airstrike in response to recent attacks by Iran-linked groups. More next. Late today, the Pentagon said U.S. fighter jets conducted a self-defense strike at a weapons storage facility in Syria that was being used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in a statement that the strike was carried out at President Biden's direction. It is the second time in recent weeks that the U.S. has attacked targets in Syria. Joining me now is NBC News Pentagon correspondent Courtney Kuby. And I think the, the, the sort of burning question for lots of people— uh, even though this was not near um, the Israel-Palestine, you know, the, right near there, it was, it was north, far north of there, is whether this is related in any way. I think that's what a lot of people are wondering. And Joy, that is the perfect question. And it, defense officials want to say that this is completely separate and apart from the war that's raging in Israel and in Gaza right now. But the reality is none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. So there have not been strikes and attacks on bases housing Americans in Iraq and Syria for months. They restarted on October 17th, and we've seen a pretty strong uptick in attacks since then, as many as five on Sunday, in fact, across bases in Iraq and Syria. That's why the U.S. took this strike tonight in northeastern Syria. You, the U.S. saying that it was a retaliation for those attacks on bases, at, at least 41 of them since October 17th. Now, the majority of those strikes or those attacks on these bases have not been effective, but there have been at least 46 U.S. personnel who have received minor injuries, many of them uh, include traumatic brain injuries, from these attacks on these bases. At least four of them have seen some damage to infrastructure or injuries. Now, the strikes tonight in northeastern Syria, we're looking at the map right now, they were against a facility that housed uh, ammunition and weapons for these Iranian-backed militias. But they come about two weeks after another set of strikes, also in northeastern Syria, targeting facilities with weapons and ammunition. But officials, after those strikes, there have still been more attacks against these bases. And that's why they carried out the second set tonight. The big question is, will what, what, what the U.S., these strikes by these F-15s tonight, will they have the deterrent effect that these attacks on bases will stop now? And we're just going to have to wait and see what happens, Joy. Um, quick follow-up. Um, I mean, you can put the map back up, because as we, as we can see by the map, this is relatively close to Iran. We know that there are carriers that were moved uh, to the region at the start of uh, after October 7th. Um, how much of a risk is there that this winds up pulling us into some sort of conflict with Iran? We know these are Iran-backed groups. 
Well, that's the the the, act, the big concern here. So the concern is that one of these attacks is successful and that it, an, a U.S. service member or members are killed and that that would potentially draw the U.S. into a wider conflict here. So what's interesting is, despite the fact that these attacks by these drones, mortars, indirect fire, despite the fact that they've been carried out by these Iranian-backed groups, primarily Kataib Hezbollah, who operates in, in Iraq and Syria— but the U.S. is calling on Iran to tell these groups to stop, to direct them to stop these attacks, to stop training and equipping and funding the groups so that they can't carry out these attacks. And, you know, you mentioned that there's the carrier. If you look at that map right there, there's a carrier strike group in the eastern in eastern Mediterranean. That's really more directed at Israel. But there's also a number of U.S. Uh, ships in the uh, the uh, the Persian Gulf, in the Northern Red Sea. So there's certainly a large military presence throughout the region. And it's only grown since October 7th, Joy. Courtney Kuby, thank you very much. Um, thank you. Great reporting. Coming up, 22 Thanks. House Democrats join most Republicans in voting to censure Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib for her controversial comments about Israel and Gaza. We'll be right back. Thousands of Palestinians continue to flee northern Gaza as Israeli troops push into the heart of Gaza City. And the U.N. and Red Cross continue warning of a human a humanitarian catastrophe. While here in the U.S., the House of Representatives, which I should note has still not passed a budget to avoid a government shutdown, took time out of its schedule yesterday to censure Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib, the sole Palestinian-American in Congress, over her rhetoric about the war between Israel and Hamas. 22 Democrats joined most Republicans in the rebuke, accusing her of calling for the destruction of Israel for her use of the slogan, from the river to the sea. The censure, however, did not come before heated debate on the House floor. Rashida Tlaib has the right to spew anti-Semitic vitriol and even call for the destruction of the Jewish state. But the House of Representatives also has the right to make it clear that her hate speech does not reflect the opinion of the chamber. What is true here is that every single one of them has not acknowledged the fact that Palestinians are dying in the tens of thousands, but will continue to say it is us who are not acknowledging humanity. Gentlemen, you had a member of call my colleague a terrorist, and you didn't censor her. Palestinian people are not disposable. We are human beings, just like anyone else. The cries of the Palestinian and, Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why, what I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Brad Schneider of Illinois, who voted in favor of censuring Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Uh, and I'm sure you were able to hear, I know that you probably can't see it, but you could hear, and I'm sure you were hearing uh, what uh, Congresswoman Tlaib had to say yesterday. Uh, tell me why you voted to censure her. Well, thank you for having me. Sure. The, the, issue, the issue is that uh, the phrase from the river to the sea has a long history. It was initial Initially, the cry of the PLO in 1964, mind you, the PLO in 1964, before Israel took control of Gaza or the West Bank. It is the rallying cry of Hamas, and it has a very distinct meaning. 
It is the meaning of the destruction of Israel and the murder of the Jews living in Israel. And so that's why it is a fraught, a fraught phrase which ha carries heavy weight. I think the important thing to recognize is that as elected officials, we all have a responsibility to express our, our feelings, express our views, and have the right to do so. But we also have a responsibility to measure our words, to reserve judgments, and to correct them when we misspeak or, or, or say things. Representative Tlaib has put up on her social media the, the lie about an attack on, on the hospital in Gaza that was not uh, an attack by Israel, but was an errant rocket from Palestinian Islamic Jihad. We asked her to t I asked her to take it down. She still has not. And when she uses the term from the river to the sea, people know what that means. They know that Hamas, when they crossed the border on October 7th, brutally murdered 1,400 people, took 240 civilians hostage back to, to Gaza, continues to hold those hostages today and continues to fire rockets at Israeli cities from Palestinian neighborhoods in Gaza. When they say from the river to the sea, it has a very specific meaning, and that meaning, meaning needed to be called out. Well, let me ask you this question, because this phrase has had many meetings over the many years, um, and it has been used in ways that I think could be arguably um, negative toward Israel or wanting Israel not to exist anymore. But not everyone agrees that that's what it is. Uh, are you aware that the Likud party, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's party, used in its original party platform between the sea and the Jordan, there will be only Israeli sovereignty. So others have used the phrase as well. Um, and are just as wrong. And it, it's, you know, the, I'm, I'm the, one of the founders and co-chairs of the Abraham Accords Caucus uh, in Congress, bipartisan, bicameral. And the idea of the Abraham Accords, the normalization of relations between Israel and Arab states, is that Jews and Arabs belong to the same land. Both have legitimate claims to that land and both need to learn how to live on that land. And the Abraham Accords recognizes Israel, but also recognizes that by embracing each other, Arabs and Jews together can not only lift up the land, but can lift up each other, the people of the region, and give all their kids the future and prosperity that they deserve. Let me uh, read to you what Rashida Tlaib, her explanation of her use of the slogan. This is what she said. From the river to the sea is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. My work and advocacy is always centered in justice and dignity for all people, no matter faith or ethnicity. Did you have a conversation with your Democratic colleague um, before making the decision on how to vote on this, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not questioning, I'm not questioning her intentions, her good intentions. I believe that she wants for the Palestinians the peace that she, she talks about and promotes. But the fact of the matter is that Hamas uses from the river to sea as their rallying cry. People around the world have heard that, have joined that, and have called but for the destruction my, of the state of my Israel. My question to you, though, is did you talk to her? Did you have a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation with her? She hasn't talked to me in over a year. Um, let me ask you this question. Are you concerned about the optics of while 10,000 people um, have reportedly been killed in Gaza, and 4,000 of them children. And while people are still dying, and the fact that she has family in the West Bank where settler violence is continuing, that she's been censured. When I'm going to just put up a tweet by Mehdi Hassan, by my colleague Mehdi Hassan, about some of the things that others have said in the House. Republican Congressman Max Miller said Gaza should be turned into a parking lot. Republican Congressman Brian Mast said Palestinian civilians are like Nazis. Republican senators Lindsey Graham and Tom Cotton said Gaza should be leveled and the and to bounce the rubble. None of those people have been censured. 
Would you call upon those people to be censured? And are you concerned about the optics of just censuring the one Palestinian American member? Look, I, I have a, a, a long record. I called out Paul, Paul Gosar when he threatened uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I called out Marjorie Taylor Greene when she made inappropriate uh, analogies to the Holocaust. Uh, when Brian Mass on the floor last week, uh, when we were debating various bills, uh, made the statements or similar statements to what you just described about the Palestinians, I called him out on it. We have to see the humanity on all sides. And it's, it's, not, it's not just the optics of 10,000 people, uh, people dying in Gaza. In war, the civilians are always the victims. They're caught in the middle. Hamas started this war on October 7th with a horrific, heinous attack, killing 1,400 Israelis, murdering and raping those Israelis. They took 240 prisoners hostage that they will not allow the International Red Cross to visit or provide them the medical care that they need. We need to come together and talk to each other and find a way to promote peace. But as long as Hamas controls Gaza, as long as Hamas is threatening to destroy Israel and calling for the genocide of the Jewish people, there can't be peace what for Israel I, yeah. or Palestine. And what, what, what I asked you about was not the obviously the, you know, 10,000 people and 4,000 children dying is not optics. I meant the optics of censuring the only Palestinian American member of the United States House of Representatives. Very briefly, we're it, out of time. It, 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 yeah, it's, it's not a question of who, it's a question of the words. And the, the statement okay. from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is a call for the destruction of Israel and the genocide of the Jewish people. And I, I will call that any time. And I will note that she does not... Uh, agree with that and that she is not I, embraced I understand. that. Okay. Well, I understand that. Right. Mm -hmm. Congressman Brad Schneider, I'm so sorry. We're out of time. I wish we had more time. Okay. Thank you so sure much. Thing. That is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.